Hello and welcome to Sleep Cove, the podcast and YouTube channel to get a great night's sleep. Please listen in a place where you can safely and comfortably go to sleep. Hello, I hope everyone's had a great day and are ready for a good night's sleep. This reading is a collection of the first three short stories from Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories collection. I'm reading this tonight because I used to listen to these as an audiobook when I was a child and it was read out by the actor Jeffrey Palmer who recently passed away. So this recording is dedicated in his memory. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Do you want to have some fun playing a puzzle solving game that really engages your brain? Then I can recommend the game Best Fiends. It's a casual game for adults that anyone can play. It's like a mix of character collecting with bugs being your buddies and the enemies are slugs and it's a really fun puzzle game. I'm really enjoying playing the game and I'm still in the Onimus Oceans but will soon be progressing to the treetops levels and I can't wait to see what's next. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5 star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So let's begin. Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories How the Whale Got His Throat In the sea once upon a time, O my best beloved, there was a whale and he ate fishes. He ate the starfish and the garfish and the crab and the dab and the place and the dace and the skate and his mate and the mackerel and the pickerel and the really truly twirly-whirly eel. All the fishes he could find in all the sea he ate with his mouth so. Till at last there was only one small fish left in all the sea and he was a small stoot fish and he swam a little behind the whale's right ear so as to be out of harm's way. And the whale stood up on his tail and said, I'm hungry. And the small stoot fish said in a small stoot voice, Noble and generous whale, have you ever tasted man? No, said the whale. What is it like? Nice, said the small stoot fish. Nice, but nubbly. Then fetch me some, said the whale, and he made the sea froth with his tail. One at a time is enough, said the stoot fish. If he swim to latitude 50 north, longitude 40 west, that is magic, you will find sitting on a raft in the middle of the sea, with nothing on but a pair of blue canvas breeches, a pair of suspenders, you must not forget the suspenders, best beloved, and a jackknife. One shipwrecked mariner, who, it is only fair to tell you, is a man of infinite resource and sagacity. So the whale swam and swam to latitude 50 north and longitude 40 west 
as fast as he could swim, and on a raft, in the middle of the sea, with nothing to wear except a pair of blue canvas breeches, a pair of suspenders, you must particularly remember the suspenders, best beloved, and a jackknife. He found one single, solitary, shipwrecked mariner, training his toes in the water. He had his mummy's leave to paddle, or else he would never have done it, because he was a man of infinite resource and sagacity. When the whale opened his mouth, back and back and back, till it nearly touched his tail, and he swallowed the shipwrecked mariner and the raft he was sitting on, and his blue canvas breeches, and the suspenders, which you must not forget, and the jackknife. He swallowed them all down into his warm, dark, inside cupboards, and then he smacked his lips, so and turned round three times on his tail. But soon as the mariner, who was a man of infinite resource and sagacity, found himself truly inside the whale's warm, dark, inside cupboards, he stumped and he jumped and he thumped and he bumped, and he pranced and he danced and he banged and he clanged, and he hit and he bit and he leaped and he creaked, and he prowled and he howled and he hopped and he dropped, and he cried and he sighed and he crawled and he bawled, and he stepped and he leapt and he danced hornpipes where he shouldn't, and then the whale felt most unhappy indeed. Have you forgotten the suspenders, best beloved? So he said to the stute fish, This man is very nubbly, and besides he's making me hiccup. What shall I do? Tell him to come out, said the stute fish. So the whale called down his own throat to the shipwrecked mariner, Come out and behave yourself, I've got the hiccups. Nay, nay, said the mariner, not so, but far otherwise. Take me to my natal shore on the white cliffs of Albion, and I'll think about it. And he began to dance more than ever. You had better take him home, said the stutefish to the whale. I ought to have warned you that he's a man of infinite resource and sagacity. So the whale swam and swam and swam, with both flippers and his tail, as hard as he could, for the hiccups, and at last he saw the mariner's natal shore and the white cliffs of Albion, and he rushed halfway up the beach and opened his mouth wide and wide and wide, and said, Change here for Winchester, Nashakeen, and stations on the Fitchburg Road. And just as he said Fitch, the mariner walked out of his mouth. But while the whale had been swimming, the mariner, who was indeed a person of infinite resource and sagacity, had taken his jackknife and cut up the little raft into a little square, grating all running criss-cross, and he had tied it with his firm suspenders. Now you know why you were told not to forget the suspenders. And he dragged that grating good and tight into the whale's throat, and there it stuck and there he recited the following sloka, which, as you have not heard it, I will now proceed to relate. 
by means of a grating, I have stopped your eating. For the mariner he was also an high burian, and he stepped out on the shingle and went home to his mother, who had given him leave to trail his toes in the water, and he married and lived happily ever afterward. So did the whale, but from that day on, the grating in his throat, which he could neither cough up nor swallow down, prevented him eating anything except very, very small fish. And that is the reason why whales nowadays never eat men or boys or little girls. The small stute fish went and hid himself in the mud under the door sills of the equator. He was afraid that the whale might be angry with him. The sailor took the jackknife home. He was wearing the blue canvas breeches when he walked out on the shingle. The suspenders were left behind, you see, to tie the grating with. And this is the end of that tale. When the cabin portholes are dark and green because of the seas outside, when the ship goes wop with a wiggle between and the steward falls into the soup tureen and the trunks begin to slide when nursery lies on the floor in a heap and mummy tells you to let her sleep and you aren't waked or washed or dressed, why, then you will know if you haven't guessed, you're 50 North and 40 West. How the Camel Got His Hump Now this is the next tale, and it tells how the camel got his big hump. In the beginning of years, when the world was so new and all, and the animals were just beginning to work for man, there was a camel, and he lived in the middle of a howling desert, because he did not want to work, and besides, he was a howler himself. So he ate sticks and thorns, and tamarisks and milkweed and prickles, most scrutiatingly idle, and when anybody spoke to him, he said humph, just humph, and no more. Presently the horse came to him on Monday morning, with a saddle on his back and a bit in his mouth, and said, Camel, O oh camel, come out and trot like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the horse went away and told the man. Presently the dog came to him with a stick in his mouth and said, Camel, O oh camel, come and fetch and carry like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the dog went away and told the man, Presently the ox came to him, with a yoke on his neck, and said, Camel, O oh camel, come and plough like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the ox went away and told the man. At the end of the day the man called the horse, and the dog, and the ox together, and said, Three, O oh three, I'm very sorry for you, with the world so new and all. But the hump thing in the desert can't work, or he would have been here by now. So I'm going to leave him alone, and you must work double time to make up for it. This made the three very angry, with the world so new and all, and they held a palaver, and an idaba, and a punchayet, and a powwow on the edge of the desert, 
and the camel came chewing on milkweed, most cruciatingly idle, and laughed at them. Then he said, Humph, and went away again. Presently, there came along the jinn in charge of all deserts, rolling in a cloud of dust. Jinns always travel that way because it is magic. And he stopped to palaver and powwow with the three. Jinn of all deserts, said the horse, is it right for anyone to be idle with the world so new and all? Certainly not, said the jinn. Well, said the horse, there's a thing in the middle of your howling desert, and he's a howler himself, with a long neck and long legs, and he hasn't done a stroke of work since Monday morning. He won't trot. Woo, said the jinn whistling. That's my camel for all the gold in Arabia. What does he say about it? He says humph, said the dog, and he won't fetch and carry. Does he say anything else? Only humph, and he won't plough, said the ox. Very good, said the jinn. I'll humph him if you will kindly wait a minute. The jinn rolled himself up in his dust cloak, and he took a bearing across the desert, and found the camel most scruciatingly idle, looking at his own reflection in a pool of water. My long and bubbling friend, said the jinn, what's this I hear of you doing no work with the world so new and all? Humph, said the camel. The jinn sat down with his chin in his hand, and began to think a great magic, while the camel looked on at his own reflection in the pool of water. You've given the three extra work ever since Monday morning, all on account of your own scruciatingly idleness, said the jinn, and he went on thinking magics with his chin in his hand. Humph, said the camel. I shouldn't say that again if I were you, said the jinn, who might say it once too often. Bubbles, I want you to work. And the camel said humph again, but no sooner had he said it than he saw his back. That he was so proud of, puffing up and puffing up into a great big lolloping humph. Did you see that? said the jinn. That's your very own humph that you've brought upon your very own self by not working. Today is Thursday and you've done no work since Monday. When the work began, now you are going to work. How can I, said the camel, with this humph on my back? That's made a purpose, said the jinn, all because you missed those three days. You will be able to work now for three days without eating, because you can live on your humph, and don't you ever say, I never did anything for you. Come out of the desert and go to the three and behave. Humph yourself. And the camel humphed himself and humph and all and went away to join the three. And from that day to this the camel always wears a humph. We call it hump now, not to hurt his feelings. But he has never caught up with the three that he missed at the beginning of the world. And he has never learned how to behave. The camel's hump 
is an ugly lump, which well you may see at the zoo, but uglier yet is the hump we get from having too little to do. Kiddies and grown-ups too too oo if you haven't enough to do to do, we get the hump, Camillus's hump. The hump is black and blue. We climb out of bed with a frozzly head and a snarly varley voice. We shither and scowl and we grunt and we growl at our bath and our boots and our toys. And there ought to be a corner for me and I know there is one for you. When we get the hump, Camillus's hump, the hump that is black and blue, the cure for this ill is not to sit still or frost with a book by the fire, but to take a large hoe and a shovel or so and dig till you gently perspire. And then that you will find that the sun and the wind and the gin of the garden too have lifted the hump, that horrible hump, the hump that is black and blue. I get it as well as you hoo hoo if you haven't got anything to do. We all get hump, Camelissa's hump, kiddies and grown-ups too. How the rhinoceros got his skin. Once upon a time on an inhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a Parsi from whose hat the rays of the sun were reflected in more than oriental splendour. And the Parsi lived by the Red Sea with nothing but his hat and his knife and a cooking stove of the kind that you must particularly never touch. And one day he took flour and water and currants and plums and sugars and things and made himself one cake which was two feet across and three feet thick. It was indeed a superior comestible. That's magic. And he put it on stove because he was allowed to cook on the stove. And he baked it and he baked it till it was all done brown and smelt most sentimental. But just as he was going to eat it, there came down to the beach from the altogether uninhabited interior one rhinoceros, the horn on his nose, two piggy eyes and a few manners. In those days, the rhinoceros's skin fitted him quite tight. There were no wrinkles in it anywhere. He looked exactly like the rhinoceros from Noah's Ark, but of course much bigger. All the same, he had no manners then, and he had no manners now, and he never will have any manners. He said, how? And the Parsi left that cake and climbed to the top of a palm tree with nothing on it but his hat, from which the rays of the sun were always reflected in more than oriental splendour. And the rhinoceros upset the oil stove with his nose, and the cake rolled on the sand, and he spiked the cake on his horn of his nose, and he ate it, and he went away, waving his tail to the desolate and the exclusively uninhabited interior, which abuts on the islands of Mazanduran, Socotra, and the promontories of the large equinox. When the Parsi came down from his palm tree and put the stove on its legs and recited the following sloka, which, as you have not heard, I will proceed to relate. 
Them that take the cakes which the Parsi man bakes makes dreadful mistakes. And there was a great deal more in that than you would think. Because five weeks later, there was a heat wave in the Red Sea and everybody took off all the clothes they had. The Parsi took off his hat, but the rhinoceros took off his skin and carried it over his shoulder as he came down to the beach to bathe. In those days, it buttoned underneath with three buttons and looked like a waterproof. He said nothing whatever about the Parsi's cake because he had eaten it all and he never had any manners, then, since, or henceforward. He waddled straight into the water and blew bubbles through his nose, leaving his skin on the beach. Presently, the Parsi came by and found the skin, and he smiled one smile that ran all round his face two times. Then he danced three times round the skin and rubbed his hands. Then he went to his camp and filled his hat with cake crumbs, for the Parsi never ate anything but cake, and he never swept out his camp. He took that skin and he shook that skin, and he scrubbed that skin and he rubbed that skin, just as full of old, dry, stale, tickly cake crumbs and some burned currants as ever it could possibly hold. Then he climbed to the top of his palm tree and waited for the rhinoceros to come out of the water and put it on. And then the rhinoceros did, and he buttoned it up with the three buttons, and it tickled like cake crumbs in bed. Then he wanted to scratch, but that made it worse, and then he lay down on the sands and rolled and rolled and rolled, and every time he rolled, the cake crumbs tickled him worse and worse and worse. Then he ran to the palm tree, and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed himself against it. He rubbed so much and so hard that he rubbed his skin into a great big fold over his shoulders and another fold underneath where the buttons used to be. But he had rubbed the buttons off and he rubbed some more folds over his legs and it spoiled his temper. But it didn't make the least difference to the cake crumbs. They were inside his skin and they tickled. So he went home very angry indeed, and horribly scratchy. And from that day to this, every rhinoceros has great folds in his skin, and a very bad temper, all on account of the cake crumbs inside. But the Parsi came down from his palm tree, wearing his hat, from which the rays of the sun were reflected, in more than oriental splendour, packed up his cooking stoves, and went away in the direction of Oratovo, Amigdala, and the upland meadows of Anataravio, and the marshes of Sonaput. This uninhabited island is off Cape Gardafi, by the beaches of Socotra, and the pink Arabian Sea. But it's hot, too hot from Suez, for the likes of you and me, ever to go in a piano and call on the cake, Parsee.